Hi, I'm Lindsay, and I'm talking with MedTech industry leaders on how they change lives for a better world. The inventions and technologies are fascinating, and so are the people who work with them. There was a period of time where I realized fundamentally my job was to go hang out with really smart people that are saving lives and then do work that would help them save more lives. I got into the business to save lives and it is incredibly motivating to work with people who are in that same business, saving or improving lives. What better industry than where I get to wake up every day and just save people's lives? These are extraordinary people doing extraordinary work. And this is The Leading Difference. Hello, and welcome to The Leading Difference podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am excited to introduce you to my guest today, Ken Hoimi. Ken is the semi-retired former director of product security at Boston Scientific. His 40-year career spanned commercial aviation and aerospace and medical devices with specific emphasis on medical device security. In retirement, Ken continues to consult, teach, and volunteer. Welcome, Ken. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks, Lindsay. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. If you wouldn't mind just starting off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, I would love to hear more about you. Sure, I'd be happy to. Being semi-retired, I have had a career that spans close to 40 years. Actually, I think I just passed 40 years about a month ago from when I started working. So I went to grad school, did four years of grad school at the same time my wife was in vet school. So four years of marriage that we were both studying like crazy. I never finished my dissertation on a PhD. So I'm the classic PhD, ABD person. Pretty much my entire career has been spent in safety critical, life critical systems, which has been a fascinating area. You've got to do the right job or people might die. I started split 50-50. My first 18 years was at Honeywell Corporate Research Lab, where I ended up working on various things between integrated circuit projects, but a lot of it was focused on control systems for commercial aircraft. And so building safety critical systems that made the pilot interface to the airplane was fascinating, tough but interesting problems. Touched a bit on industrial controls and automotive controls. And then mid-career, I got recruited away by former Honeywell folks who had gone to Guidant, a medical device company at the time that was later purchased by Boston Scientific, and where I ended up working initially on cardiac pacemakers and defibrillators, and then shifted into remote patient monitoring. And that kind of evolved into more detailed interactions with how security can impact patient safety. So a large fraction of the last 12, 15 years has been in medical devices, cybersecurity. Got a brief stint, three and a half years in a small R&D company doing uh, research on medical device cybersecurity, and then returned to Boston Scientific in 2016 to lead the product security program at Boston Scientific, which is what I was doing when I officially retired. Nice. Okay. So lots of cool twists and turns throughout your career. I wanted to touch on a couple things. First is you've actually talked about how one of the running themes was safety and safety critical systems and whatnot. And I'm curious, have you always had an interest or a passion in safety and security? Where did that come from? Given some of my behavior as a kid, you wouldn't think so. I certainly had my share of foolish things as you grew up. My, my interest in grad school was in computer architecture 
kind of a foot between hardware and software, though I was in electrical engineering as, as a degree. So as I ended up at Honeywell, Honeywell was at one time focused on control systems. And control systems are cyber physical systems. They are computers touching the real world physically. And almost all aspects of cyber physical systems, which are pervasive in now what's viewed as U.S. critical infrastructure, there's a safety aspect of whether you're talking about nuclear power plants or oil or refining and things that can explode to commercial aviation, automotive, all of those things, if they don't work correctly, the people that are interacting with them that run the risk of being harmed. What really was that culture at the original research center of thinking about how you interact with the physical world. And so that really grew that interest. And that was the skill set. Are you doing safety analysis that drew guidance to recruit me? Because it really was obviously another safety critical environment and, and cardiac devices. So it was a, an early budding interest that was really nurtured by uh, the projects and things I worked on at Honeywell. Yeah, absolutely. And then you obviously continued to grow in your career. You continued to be involved in safety and security. And then you had your stint at Boston Scientific. And I wonder if you could share a little bit more about some of the projects that you worked on that were particularly impactful or just moments that stand out, perhaps. My first project, I knew nothing about things that blend. I had avoided them. In junior high, I had a dissective fraud. I really didn't like it. And so in high school, when you needed to have some science stuff, and I knew I was planning on going toward electrical engineering, I skipped biology and took chemistry and physics. And by working on cyber physical systems, aircraft and automotive and industrial controls, nothing blew. Well, I also had no pets growing up. And when I started dating my now wife of 44 years, she had a quarter horse, four Shetland ponies, a dog and two cats at the 10 acre hobby farm. She had talked her parents into buying so that she could have horses. And as a veterinarian, everything in her life fled. So we really had this difference in backgrounds, but interest in learning from each other. And so when I first went to guidance, the company recognized I didn't have that domain knowledge. And so I ended up being put on projects specifically with the goal of rapidly bringing me up to speed. I went to various classes on how the arc works, how you pace it, all of the various different things. And I can tell you that the, the dinner conversation changed considerably as I was learn these things and my wife knew these things. So the, it was kind of a exhilarating mid-career change because of having to learn the domain. So because of my safety background, Guyton was working on a new architecture for their pacemakers and defibrillators. And I got put on the redundant safety core, which was a redundant hardware pacemaker and defibrillator. If anything failed in the rest of the device, the hardware would kick in and, and keep the patient pink. And so I got to work on that and I ended up with several patents. And so in 2006 or seven, I believe my brother-in-law, my wife brother ended up with a viral cardiomyopathy and his ejection fraction was down at 15%. It's normally in a healthy human should be up around 70. He ended up getting a resynchronization defibrillator that I had worked on as well as being put on the home patient monitor that I had been the lead system engineer in developing. And so that was that first 
family connection of recognizing that what you're doing is personal. And a few years back, my now 95-year-old mother-in-law has a pacemaker in and I have four patents on the technology. So you're recognizing that people that you love and care for are using these things and the people who get these things are loved and cared for by somebody. So it really becomes a passion of building something that works correctly and is safe. Those kind of things stand out in terms of things that are meaningful. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because when you are able to see the result in real time, in real life, by people who you know personally who are affected by it, that's such a full circle moment of just recognizing that what you do isn't confined to this silo. It actually does impact lives. And that's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. And, and a crossover into security. I can recommend the devices that I was involved in developing because I am personally familiar with the level of detail that have been done in terms of securing them. So I don't have fears that my family members or others are going to have hackers going after them, which is a paranoia in the industry. The idea of hacking pacemakers became, as Dr. Kevin said, sucks the oxygen out of the room. It's theoretically possible, but very difficult to do compared to devices that might connect to a hospital network, which are exposed to, to more. To that point, if you don't mind sharing a little bit more about how you were able to develop those skills and awareness of the importance of medical device security, I know that you are an expert in this field and there is a lot more education and knowledge these days, but it still seems like something every once in a while that you have to remind people this is actually a critical thing. Do you mind speaking a bit to that? I started out as an electrical engineer when evolved to a systems engineer, particularly working in aviation. I worked on the design of the flight tank for the Boeing 777. And Boeing is the, at least they used to be, they lost some of the secret sauce, but they were the premier system engineering organization in the world. And working on a critical system for an aircraft with the mastery of system engineering you start learning the techniques of my, my evolution into system engineering was very much on the job training. Certainly a lot of, of reading and things that went on at the same time, but was also interacting with experts. Similar thing happened when security came along is I got recruited into guidance because of my safety skills. And then within the first year of being there, guidance was putting a remote patient management system together, which was a bedside monitor for every patient with radio links to the device, links up to a server that would analyze all the data for potential alerts that the physician should know. The system has more than a million patients on it, so it's scalable, protected health information, all of that. Program manager on that project understood the importance of the various abilities that sit around system engineering and deal with the development. So he hired in a PhD psychologist to do human center design and machine interfacing, dealing with all of those issues. And in the medical device world, user interfaces also touch safety because if you have confusion and a physician or patient makes a mistake in using something, harm can happen. So it's another branch of safety. And he recognized the security implications of what we were doing and hired in security experts. And so we had this old grizzled, bearded absolute the canonical look of a computer geek that had been a chief architect at a company called Secure Computing and had been security. And he was titled our security curmudgeon. And 
as lead system engineer, I worked with these various groups as we balanced the design and it really was interacting with real experts in this field who had no compunction about correcting me whenever I said anything, what was inaccurate <laughs> in that environment, I started absorbing the methods of doing security and the importance of it and what those done. So it really was one of those cool opportunities in your career where you get to evolve and mind meld with experts and, and absorb the information and integrate it with what you know. Yeah, absolutely. And at the time of this recording, the FDA has finalized their guidance. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that and how you feel it's going to affect everybody moving forward. It's an interesting because both the original pre-market guidance and the post-market guidance came out relatively quickly. The time between the draft pre-market and the issuance of it, I think, was just less than a year which everyone who were involved with guidance said was light speed for the FDA on post-market was similar, but they've done a couple of iterations in 2018 and uh, 2022 of drafts and was in a meeting earlier today where two of the FDA people who had been working on that were mentioning that in both cases, they got more than a hundred thousand comments back to the FDA related to it. You know, the, the push by Congress to have it out by October 1st really pushed them. I don't think anybody thought that it would be feasible to get it done and yet they did it. it. It seems like they have clarified, you know, many of the concerns that were still in the 2022 draft, had some clear definitions about things like exploitability. So I think it really will anchor them. Everyone is scrambling this week to read it and adapt to what's in there. But the good news is it's not a giant leap from what they issued in 2022. So it's not going to have everyone doing a 90 or 180 degree turn on what they've already assumed it was heading for. So yeah. it's just good to have that out in its uh, definitive form. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be exciting to see how the industry adapts. As one example, the Health Sector Coordinating Council had published in 2018, I believe it was, their Joint Security Plan, which is the non-formal standard, but kind of a guide, particularly helpful for smaller companies for what they need to do to incorporate cybersecurity into their quality system that they develop. And a lot has changed. And so we have been working since middle of 2022, this is one of my retirement volunteer efforts that I'm involved in, to bring it up to date. And there was a real goal for the JSP version two to be out by the end of this year. And we are worrying about the race condition with the FDA getting their final set pre-market guidance out. And so one of the activities now is adopting what we've written in a joint security plan to make sure that it is in sync and in line with the finalized guidance. By getting it out now, we have time over the next couple of months to make whatever changes we need to based on that change, which will be good. It means when that guide is updated, it will not be anchored in and old guidance, but will all properly reflect the new update from the FDA. So it's really great to see them do that. Yeah, absolutely. So circling back to something you mentioned, because I'm curious how you were able to overcome it. You mentioned you hadn't dealt early on in your career with anything 
blood related. And you didn't necessarily want to go after that when you were <laughs> in college. <laughs> How are you able to overcome that and say, no, this is fine. I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. Thankfully, I didn't have to personally do any implants. Okay. So I didn't have to deal with knife or deal with that and get flashbacks of my broad experience. Yeah. Well, uh, when I left Honeywell, I thought I was going to retire out of the company. I was in an absolutely great position at the research center. I was invited to the strategic planning sessions for the entire aviation business as a technical expert. Honeywell was bought by Allied Signal, which was quite a culture shift. Mm. They were far more prescriptive. You're telling research center, here's what you're going to do, rather than asking you to partner with the businesses that German Hubbell supply the field. And the other aspect is because I had become an expert in you know commercial aviation, I was not learning at the rate that you used to. It's like you know a lot of things. You're doing more mentoring than individual personal learning. So when I shifted domains. And got hired in because I was a senior fellow at Honeywell. They hired me in at the top technical rank that I had at the time to be competitive. I felt a huge obligation to learn the domain as, as quick as possible. I needed to feel like I was providing value. It's just not a good feeling to feel like you're taking a paycheck and not providing one thing for that. It's just not, not the way I was raised. Right. And so I really took it on that I needed to learn this domain and, and the reality all kidding aside, is the work in understanding the physiology and the behavior of cardiac devices is really more about electrochemistry and how the muscles work and how arrhythmias occur and how they can be cleared. And so it was more about learning a new technical domain than really dealing with the bleeding side of it. Yes, when I was at Honeywell, we had a program where we were working on the commercial aviation side. We had, this was pre 9-11, we had jump seat privileges. So I got to in the jump seat of, of aircraft so that you could see how the pilots who use the systems you develop, how they interact with them just as an experience base. Wow. And one of my cool things, just as an aside, they talk about you know, along with the family members using cardiac devices is I got the jump seat at 777 from Dulles to Frankfurt and that's the aircraft that I a fundamental invention to enable how the flight deck works. So that was cool to, to actually see the pilots interact with what you did. Yeah. <laughs> the same thing happened in the cardiac world is you got the opportunity to go and experience implants and see the doctors using and interacting with the devices. Again, part of that systems knowledge of how does the end person, the actual user use those devices and how do you use that knowledge to get better? So the closest thing you get to bleeding is to, to watch somebody else do one, but I never had to actually directly deal with blood. Okay. That's fair. That's a really good hybrid situation right there. <laughs> well, nowadays I understand that you are quote unquote retired. However, you are still quite active. So I would love to hear about your current initiatives and frankly, if you don't mind sharing why you're still so involved. Obviously you care, but I'd love to hear it from your perspective. So I've always been a bit of a workaholic. I need a lot of my you know, intellectual stimulation through the people I interact with. When I started the Carpet Research Center, it was 25% PhDs, 50% masters. It's a great learning environment because there were 
brilliant people are all around you. One of my career advices I've given to, to young people is go to a place where you are not the smartest person in the room. You surround yourself with people you can learn from. You want to have your niche. You want to have something that you feel is your area of expertise that you build. But you know, being or thinking you're the best person in the room isn't necessarily a good learning experience. So I've always enjoyed interacting with people at various stages in their career. So when I retired, I don't know how many different serious and semi-serious reach outs I had from people asking what I was up to and what I was interested. It was a dozen or something. But I had been interacting for several years with a company called MedCrypt out of San Diego, a company that focuses on initially tools to help secure medical devices, comes out of the medical device world and tools for software building materials, things of that nature. And while I'm not a software engineer developing tools, they were also starting to build a service business to work with clients on how to improve their quality system. When I was at Adventium Labs, that three and a half year stint I did between my two Boston scientific experiences, along with doing government funded research on medical device security, I also did consulting with companies. And so I had formed a reasonably strong opinion about how you can best organize cybersecurity into a quality management system in a medical device company. And so able to apply those skills very lightweight. And I try to keep my consulting to no more than one day a week. Mm-hmm. Still can do some retirement activities. And Mike Kajewski was the CEO that I've interacted with him for many years. And he had been pursuing me before he retired. So they have some people on staff, two of them are ex-FDA. One of their FDA people, Seth Carmody, had written the post-market cybersecurity for the FDA. And I think he did the first draft of the updated cybersecurity pre-market. And then they have another gentleman, Axel Worth, who I've interacted with for a decade and written textbooks in the space. And so it was a way to continue where you got to really work with smart people and continue to have that intellectual stimulation that watching TV or taking up whittling doesn't give you. Fair, but those two activities on occasion could be good for your mental health, which we were talking oh, about. Yeah. So you can have both. both. You can have both. <laughs> so my eldest daughter, when she was going to undergrad, wanted to take a, a class. She went to Luther College in Iowa, which was a very Scandinavian Norwegian school. And there was a class on Scandinavian yep. Norwegian, and she really wanted to take it. And she did, but she was going into dental school. And so there was this paranoia about her slicing something important in her hand when she's whittling. She whittled with Kevlar gloves on. Oh. So there's a certain amount of connection potentially between whittling as a hobby and that blood thing that I didn't like. So that wasn't necessarily attracted me as a retirement hobby. That's a fantastic story. Yeah. I, I love that. I wonder, you know, with her whittling skills, did those help her in her dental practice? She stopped it after undergrad. Golf with longer plays the oval. Well, she had an oval scholarship along with her sciences because the finger stretching on the elbow, she has all of the finger exercises she gets at work and doesn't really think she should be taking the risk of of fatiguing it more. And so, yeah, being safe in that environment has been important. So the thing that actually did the best for her is playing a video game. Uh, She played things like Mario world where you're having to constantly in your brain translate going around sphere things and jumping 
And that's when you're looking through a mirror and drilling in the back of the mouth, you're constantly doing these translations. And so I'm convinced that all the video games she played growing up really gave her the spatial skills that helped particularly as she took the exams to get in there. They do try to assess whether somebody's capable of that Yeah. Uh, before you get into dental school, because you don't want to get in there and start getting into drilling and having somebody who just can't make your brain do that. Thank goodness. Exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. No wonder why people are afraid of the dentist. It make they have one of the bad ones. Right. Yeah, exactly. Oh my goodness. Oh, that was so, and then I had already alluded to the fact that I'm doing volunteer work at BTFCC on the Joint Security Plan. And then the other thing that I did this last winter, and we'll be repeating this, is I uh, had developed and taught a, a master's level class in medical device cybersecurity through the University of Minnesota's Technological Leadership Institute. And so after giving it once, they decided to make it a core curriculum for their medical device innovation. So it will be scheduled to be given annually. Excellent. Things like the FDA coming out with the guidances. Even while we were giving it last winter, one of the things that would happen each week is this week, this got replaced. Oh. Kind of this constantly changing environment that happens in this space. It keeps you on your toes and it keeps you learning and growing. I guess that's a great thing. (laughs) I can't claim I've been bored. (laughs) Brilliant. All right, pivoting just for fun, imagine someone were to offer you a million dollars to teach a masterclass on anything you want. It could be in your industry, but it doesn't have to be. What would you choose to teach and why? My first thought might be a masterclass in how to hold out with somebody's million dollars. Won't get caught. Okay. And realistic, if I wasn't teaching in my domain, I would probably want to expand out things related to security and safety and how that really is my technical expertise. If I was going to jump out of domain, you know, just something that might seem off the wall would be a master class on the design and physics of the pipe organ. Um, no, tell me I more. Was, when I was growing up, I studied uh, the classical organ. Okay. And saying in choir was in the Allstate Choir in high school and came out of high school thinking music major, engineering music. And I ultimately decided I could do music on an engineer's salary a lot easier than the other way around. Uh-huh. And so I have twice been on pipe organ projects at churches I've attended where they brought in and, and bid and, and had a, a pipe organ builder install. So I've been close to that process. When I've been over in Europe, I seek organ recitals. So I've gotten to hear many instruments in, in Europe that are older than the United States. And so, yeah, it's always been a passion and, and fascination of mine because there's such a you know, engineering aspect of that. And yet so much of it is musicality. And I've learned a lot interacting and talking with these builders. If I had a million bucks, I would be able to dive deeply into the topic and try to flesh out something that would actually be more comprehensive. Amazing. Okay. So I have to ask you, since you are a pipe organ enthusiast, how do you feel about the fact that there's quite a lot in pop culture of it being a vilified instrument? You know, you have the Phantom of the Opera and there's like a Disney something that has a pipe organ that's a bad character. And how do you feel about the fact that pipe organs are used as villains? 
It is always an interesting when popular culture adapts something that is so much deeper. As a totally different but side example, the accordion is always made flat. Yeah. I don't remember how I tripped across it, but there is a very famous organ work by Olivier Messiaen, a French composer, which is, I think it translates from French to English, the Epiphany of the Lord. It is a multi-part work related to the Christian story. And it is incredibly complex, somewhat challenging to listen to. You have to be quite into it. Well, there is a movement called Duparmanu, which is God descends and becomes us. And it is one of the most bombastic, just a big, huge core. It's mm. just exciting to hear. <laughs> Back 20 years ago, I heard or saw something about a Russian woman who had recorded the entire suite on accordion here in the Twin Cities. And it's naturally distributed, but I don't know how many different places. There's a gentleman by the name of Michael Barone who works for Minnesota Public Radio, who for 30 years plus has produced a weekly radio program called Pipe Dreams, all about pipe organ and that. Well, I ended up ordering, because I had a friend who was Russian and it was only available on a Russian Amazon kind of equivalent, copies of it. and sent a copy to Michael Barone and he actually played an excerpt. I think he did the department news section on his radio program. And it's in countries like Russia, the accordion is treated very much differently than in Western countries where it's more of a pulpo accompaniment. And so it's different instruments have the different faces depending on how they're viewed and who's viewing them. So I just tend to look at the mass media view of it as the unwashed heathen. Uh, that said, there is a woman who is bursting out of the scene. She's 26, I think, British. Her name is Anna Hapwood. And she has been making TikTok videos of her playing the organ, including at the, the Albert Great Hall that they do the BBC proms. Mm-hmm. And she is popularizing the instrument through her TikTok videos. I, I think it was CBS Sunday morning. I saw her interviewed about how she's popularizing the instruments. You never know with the the modern media and music distribution, how somebody might reinvigorate interest in something that was viewed as old fashioned before. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I think it always depends on context. All sorts of instruments, for instance, could be used to be very lighthearted and fun or very serious and mysterious. And part of it is just, yeah, are you playing in the major or minor keys and all the things that go into it. But Anyway, it's just funny because pipe organ, I feel, is one of those instruments that's a little polarizing. I understand that I was worked as a child. And <laughs> interesting merging there is my father was a serial hobbyist. And when he went into a hobby, he went in 110%. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up in my formative years, he was into gardening and breeding his own uh, Asiatic lily types. And we had flowers everywhere and well, gardening clubs would come through and tour the garden. Then he went cold turkey on it and decided to build an electronic organ in the basement. And he built it from initially a kit and then through other designs that he he did. And so I was in fifth or sixth grade with a soldering iron in my hand, helping build this electronic organ. And it was part of what I view my dad. His dad died in the Great Depression. He came out of World War II, really had to 
support his mother and sister and never really had the money for college. He would have been a great engineer, but instead he manipulated my brother and I to both become electrical engineers and part of it was by these. So part of my interest in Oregon was also my father's manipulation of getting my brother and I both interested in electrical engineering. <laughs> hey, it worked out. <laughs> I love it. Okay. My, my brother has a church organ in his basement, so it took a little heavier with him than it did with me. I enjoy it being played, but I don't play it myself anymore. Uh, Number one would be that I didn't overstay my welcome. I would hope remember that I made lives better. I made lives safer. That attention to detail matter, and I worked on things that were significant, actually had meaning for people's lives. When I moved from Honeywell to Guidant, I said I used to be worrying on things that if they failed, people might die 375 people at a time. And then you get into medical devices and now you're working to save their life one at a time. And I would hope that you remember that I worked to make a difference and had positive impact on people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then final question, what is one thing that makes you smile every time you see or think about it? I would have to say my children. Yeah. Yeah. I'm incredibly proud of them. They're both, both professionals, a dentist and an audiologist. They have remarkably snarky sense of the error that I, I presume they got from their mother. <laughs> my, my story on that one was, I was telling my eldest. One time she said something snarky and I said, Kirsten, you are the queen of snark. And her instant response was, yeah, perfect. You bought it. <laughs> but yeah, as you think about what you leave behind in the world and, and I'm incredibly proud of them and the things that they've learned, they both secure, use individual passwords on every website and deal with the internet with sufficient paranoia that they should. So I'm proud of that as well. But yeah. Excellent. Well, it sounds like you raised them right. <laughs> and they had to live with and growing up with their dad being an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. But it looks like it all worked out beautifully. So it I'm did. very glad to hear all that. Ken, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you joining me today. It was great to hear about your background and your advice. And I loved especially hearing about some of the, the little nuances that I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise, like pipe organ interests. So that's fantastic. Uh, we are so honored to be making a donation on your behalf as a thank you for your time today to Save the Children, which works to end the cycle of poverty by ensuring communities have the resources to provide children with a healthy, educational, and safe environment. So thanks so much for choosing that organization to support. And we just wish you continued success as you work to change lives for a better world. Thanks, Lindsay. I really enjoyed chatting. Yeah, same. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. And if you're feeling as inspired as I am right now, I'd love it if you'd share this episode with a colleague or two, and we will catch you next time. The Leading Difference is brought to you by Valentium. Valentium is a full-service CDMO with 100% in-house capability to design, develop, and manufacture medical devices from Class II wearables to Class III active implantable medical devices. Valentium specializes in active implantables, leads, programmers, and accessories across a wide range of indications, such as neuromodulation, deep brain stimulation, cardiac management, and diabetes management. Valentium's core competencies include electrical, firmware, and mechanical design, mobile apps, embedded cybersecurity, 
human factors and usability, automated test systems, systems engineering, and contract manufacturing. Valentium works with clients worldwide, from startups seeking funding to established Fortune 100 companies. Visit valentium.com to explore your next step in medical device development.